0: Well, good morning again. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. Uh, we pick up where we left off before uh, Christmas. Um, we'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 4, all of chapter 4 and the first 13 verses of chapter 5. Um, we've, uh, we've, we've called the series that we're in, in Leviticus, Worshiping a Holy God. And uh, this particular uh, sermon I've entitled, Constant Cleanup. Well, on, uh, on the heels of what Bill just prayed, um, I've got a couple of serious questions for you. Let me just start off and ask you, brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, what do you do when you sin? How do, you, how do you think about your sin? Do you struggle with a particular brand of sin? Do you ask others to pray for you, to hold you accountable so that you might have success in a particular area of, of, of sin and, and holiness? Do you actively try to kill your sin? Do you have a plan? Do you have any sort of strategy I wonder if you can hear your own thoughts in Paul's words in Romans 7 and verse 15 and following. Listen to these, um, these, these uh, words from the apostle. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh for i have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out for i do not do the good i want but the evil i do now want i'm sorry but the evil i do now want is what i keep on doing so i find it to be a law that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand for i delight in the law of god in my inner being but i see in my members another law Waging war against the law of my mind. Can you relate? Can you can you hear the apostle's words and embrace them and think, Yeah, that's my struggle too. So I ask again: What do you do when you sin? How, how do you think about your failures? Do you try not to think about it at all? Do you try to hide your sins so that no one else knows? And what does your sin do when it comes to your intimacy with God? Is there any, is there any bad effect in your relationship with the Lord when, when, when you have these bouts with sin and you fail? Have you found that your sin keeps you from him? I mean, I, we could keep going in, in, in this, this kind of line of questioning, right? Do you sometimes feel too filthy to even talk to him? To be with him? And if that's the case, then what's the solution? Well, as you're thinking about some of those questions, let us turn to the Word of God, who, in this passage in in particular, gives us answers to these questions and and, uh, gives us a way forward. So it's a little bit of a long text, and it's a text that's about a regulation about an offering. Okay, so hang in there with me. Um, This too is God's powerful life-giving word, even the parts that we don't spend a lot of time in. Um, Let me give you a little bit of framework as I read that you could listen for. This is a a sin offering that is being talked about here by Moses as he writes Leviticus. And uh, it's it's an offering that is to purify different groups of people and even the tabernacle itself because of their sin. It starts off with priests and then it moves to the whole uh, nation uh, together and then it goes to uh, political leaders like community leaders and then individuals. So sort of listen for those categories and you'll see us move through the text. So this friends is God's word. Listen very carefully. Leviticus chapter 4 reads like this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering." He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of the meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on, on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burnt up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil, and he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, he shall, so shall he do with this. And the priests shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven." And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering." Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rust of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar, and all its fat he shall remove, as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, Uh, He shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Beginning of uh, chapter 5. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it he real- and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sins he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Almost done now. But if, but if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he's committed, two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer uh, first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven." But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering." Thus, the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. A long text, I know. And um, I feel the impulse to abandon this text. I did this week. It's a long text, it's a complicated text. And uh, no doubt you drifted away some, and, and fought back maybe a few times in the text. But I believe that this text is so important for us to grow in our understanding of our sin. It's yet another uh, uh, angle, another facet of who we are and how much we need the Savior. So the theme that I would put to you from this text is this. Sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God. Sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God. Now, if you've been here for the first three sermons in this book of Leviticus, perhaps you're thinking, why was there a need for a fourth sacrifice? I mean, we went at length talking about those first three sacrifices and and all the regulations around them. Uh, Chapter 1 lays out the rule for the burnt offering. Chapter 2 describes the grain offering and how that went. And chapter 3 was the peace offering. Those three are a nice sort of logical, tight group of sacrifices. There's logic in it. The burnt offering atoned for sin and was a promise to be wholly devoted to God by the worshiper. That atonement set the stage for men to celebrate their their intimate relationship with God, dining with him over a grain offering. And then the peace offering was there to rejoice over that restored fellowship because the the worshiper was no longer an, an enemy of God, but part of the redeemed people. That that he wanted them to be with him. As I said, those three sacrifices, they go together so nicely. It sounds like a perfect little package, doesn't it? So why is there a need for the sin offering described in our text? It's because sin is worse than we think it is. Sin is worse than it initially appears, even as you try to size yourself up this morning. In fact, sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God because of their sin. And that's the message of our text today. And in order for us to see it, for our, for, in order for us to, to, to hold on to this theme of this chapter, make it our own, walk out these doors with it and think through it and hope to be changed by it, this theme, sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God, Moses lays out the passage in this way. At least these three realities he lays out that I want to talk about uh, with you this morning. And, and this is the three. First, sin is pervasive. Second, it pollutes. And third, it requires purifying. Sin is pervasive. That is, it reaches everywhere. Sin pollutes That is, it contaminates and ruins everything it touches, even the worship of God. And finally, sin necessitates someone purifying the people and even the things that sin makes unholy. Sin's pervasive, it pollutes, and it it requires purifying. That's the three realities that that Moses lays out for us. And and I want to walk through those three realities to convince you that that sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God. So let's start with the first one. The first reality that leads us to that conclusion is this, that sin is pervasive. And it's always been this way. From the beginning, sin has been far-reaching, affecting and infecting all of the created world. After the first man and and woman fell into sin, God cursed all of creation. He he cursed all the people and parts of the world that he's made. Genesis 3.14 and and following records God cursing serpents and women and men and childbearing and the ground and, and, and the work of men in the ground. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, the apostle describes the whole creation as groaning under the curse. The pervasive nature of sin under the curse profoundly impacts the thoughts and desires of the human heart. After the flood of Noah's day, the Lord remarked on this very truth. After the flood of Noah's day, when only Noah's family remained, He pronounced this in Genesis 8.21, The inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Sin infects all of our faculties also. Our thoughts, our plans, our judgments, our decisions, our motivations, as well as our very words and actions The world certainly denies this reality, and you know what? The church does sometimes too. Maybe you do. But here in our text, the Lord employed Moses to teach Israel this reality. Even though the burnt offering, made sincerely and with a repentant heart, atoned for sin, the people continued to sin in their mind and in their behavior. And so this problem just continued. The curse of Adam was inherited by all who were born into this world, born into sin, and the reach of the curse is worse than anyone could have imagined. It goes down deeper. Its ruinous effects stretch far wider. Its nature is far more corrupting than any of us even know. And being in God's family doesn't eliminate any of these things. That's not to say... That God's people aren't being sanctified. What it does mean is that sin never goes away. In fact, everyone, no matter their status, sins again and again. Our text addresses the sins of the priests at the tabernacle in verse 3. The whole congregation is one, sinning together, verse 13. Tribal leaders, verse 22, and individual peoples in verse 27. Sin is pervasive, friends, it reaches everyone. And depending on your position, your sin may influence other people to sin. If the whole congregation fails to keep a part of the law and they don't realize it, it's likely because the priest was leading them badly. Or when an elder in a tribe fails to shepherd their family to do what's right, he leads leads those who are behind him to sin. Even generations may follow him in that sin. Places like Exodus 20 and verse 5 say that very thing. What's more, we sin, are you ready? Even when we don't intend to. I mean, we know, we, we know there's times we set out to sin, we plan to sin, this sort of high-handed sin. That's not what this text is about. This text is saying like, hey, you, the one who follows God, you know you sin even when you don't try to? Even when you don't intend to, our very nature, friends, is to transgress God's law. And so we do it sometimes even when we don't set out to do it. It may be a moral violation or, or something that makes someone unclean that is unfit for worship. The sin offering described in our text is for such times when somebody sinned and didn't mean to. Look, look at verse 2 to, to, to see the point. If anyone sins, you're looking at the book there? What's the next word? If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any one of them. That same same sort of recipe, that same sort of pattern of of someone sinning unintentionally is in verse 13, in verse 22, in verse 27. So why is it important to stop for, for a beat and think about this idea of us sinning unintentionally? At least two, two, two things to take note of here. First, just because someone isn't aware that what they are doing is prohibited by God doesn't absolve them from guilt. Just because you didn't know that you sinned doesn't take the guilt away. I mean, verse 13 and 14, look at those verses if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing's hidden from the eyes of the assembly. That is, they didn't realize they did it. Then it says, and they realize their guilt when the sin which they have committed becomes known. Uh, The the same pattern, verses 22 and 23, 27 and 28. Look again at chapter 5 and verse 1. I'm going to go 1 through 5, but I'm just going to Pick a few words here, so follow me. It starts, if anyone sins, and then a a list of various examples is provided for a few verses. If anyone sins, skip a couple verses, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, When he realizes his guilt in any of these, I'm not repeating it. It's repeated in the text three times. These verses do not say that that one becomes culpable when they come to understand their sin. No, it says that when they become aware of their sin, they understand that that sin brought guilt upon them. They didn't need to know of it. Are you following me? The guilt came when they sinned, not when they became aware of their sin. That's that's the point I'm trying to make. No one is freed from guilt by claiming they didn't understand God's truth or they didn't understand that this situation was covered by God's truth in that way. Not even a police officer or a judge will accept ignorance as an excuse for you breaking the law. I mean, break a traffic law you weren't aware of? Take advantage of a minor you didn't know was a minor. I mean, there are many, many examples in our society that reflect this biblical principle. If you break the law, if you violate God's commands, whether you meant it or not, whether you knew you did or not, you're guilty. God's standards for holiness, friends, is higher than we thought. And our sin is greater than we thought. Chapter five and verses one through four gives some examples of how an Israelite may have unintentionally violated God's commandments. But think of a couple of ways a Christian might do so today. I mean, there's lots of different things we could think of here, friends. But think of ways you might sin but not mean to. What about a young man being discipled by his father, but he's got a lot more to learn? And he sins in an area that he has not yet been taught about. That happens. I remember a young couple that came to Christ. Um, they were living as if they were married, but they weren't married. They, I believe they had one child at the time. And they became Christians. And they didn't realize they were sinning against God by living together unmarried. When they became known of it, by God's grace, they, they turned from that sin. They got married and, 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 uh, and they followed the Lord more closely on that point. But they didn't know they were sinning at the beginning. This can happen. I mean, think about this. The fact that you can break God's law without meaning to, that you could have a desire to do something contrary to God's will, but not set out to do it, this teaches us that our sin runs deeper than maybe we thought. Spiritual maturity requires that we grow in our understanding of how sinful we really are. Did you hear me? Spiritual maturity demands this that we grow in our understanding, our comprehension of how really sinful we are, so that we understand how great of a Savior we need. You understand, when you deny your sin, you deny your need for a Savior on an ongoing basis. I mean, John Newton was a slave trader turned pastor, he's the author of Amazing Grace. And in his later years, he famously said this. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. May we grow into that, friends. May this very text, this reality that we sin and don't even mean to, may that, may that convince us of the, of the greater depth of our sin than we originally thought, and cause us to run to Jesus for forgiveness and strength more and more. I, I would just ask you, are you afraid to admit that you have failures? I, I, I mean, the church, Christians do this all the time, and, it's, and, it, and it is folly to try to deny your sin and, and hide it and act like you know that R.E.M. song, you know, shiny happy people that have no problems? Do you pretend, try to portray yourself as somebody that everything's just fine? No, no sin problems at all here? Friend, we sin even when we don't know it. So let's throw off this, this facade, this, this fakery like we don't have this ongoing struggle with sin. You know, John wrote of this in his first epistle. Hear these words. First John 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He says it again, two verses later. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That's what we do when we deny our sin. So today may be a wake-up call just to humble yourself and admit to God that you actually struggle greater than you have, than you have admitted up to this point. Yes, yes, God's people can sin even unintentionally, bringing guilt or ceremonial uncleanness. But one more thing to note here. Remember I said there's two things to note about uh, our ability to sin unintentionally. One was to show how, how great our sin really is. The second one is this. While the burnt offering described in chapter 1 was a free will offering. Remember I said that? Actually, the first three offerings were like that. They weren't required at any given point. It was like just whenever you felt the need to worship God in this way, when when you had that impulse, that's when you offered the burnt offering of chapter 1 or the grain offering of chapter 2 or the peace offering of chapter 3. But this offering, The sin offering was not a free will offering, but it was one that was required whenever a person realized that they had sinned. Do you remember what I said a minute ago? The spiritually mature grow in their understanding of how great their sin is. Which means, if you were an Israelite and mature, you would be bringing sin offerings all the time. The priests would know you by name, even though there were millions of of, of them in the camp. Every time a person examines their lives and realizes they, they had behaved wrongly, every time someone came up to them and showed them their sin, every time that happened, they were to bring a sin offering. Sacrifice after sacrifice, death after death, over and over. Does this not demonstrate our theme, friends? That sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God. This is where the sin offering came in. This is is where the sin offering came in, and its necessity leads us to our next reality. The first reality was that sin's pervasive, right? Goes everywhere, affects everybody and every part of us. But secondly, sin pollutes. Sin pollutes. Sin infects and spoils everything it touches. Like raw chicken taints, every counter, plate, knife, and hand it touches. And That is the emphasis of this aspect of man's sin. That's the emphasis in this offering. The, 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 the sin's inherent nature, ability to pollute everything it touches. It contaminates us. It makes us ceremonially unclean, that is, unfit to worship God. In other words, sin sin makes us ineligible to be in God's holy presence because of the pollution we are and everything we touch. It renders our worship as filthy, offensive to God, once someone becomes unclean in the law, they must stay away from God's, God's uh, sanctuary until they're cleansed. Sometimes it's uh, the amount of days that have to pass, but always a sacrifice. What's more, if, if a worshiper failed to do that and brought their sin into the worship area, it would infect everything that was around. Every piece of holy furniture, the, the very ground that the, the worshipers were standing on, it pollutes to that extent. I mean, we see this reasoning in the violations listed in the beginning of chapter 5 there. Look, for example, at verse 2. If anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or unclean livestock or, or, or unclean... Swarming things, I think it was the other. And, and he has become unclean. We see the logic of this, right? Like, Tom, if you're going to touch a dead animal in the back of the yard, I don't want you to then grill my meat. Right? We, 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 we can see the logic in that. Similarly, chapter 13 talks about priests examining when a person has a skin disease and if it reaches to the level of leprosy. And if that's the case, the priest, the, uh, the priest would pronounce them unclean. Well, we can get behind that, right? I mean, you got some kind of rash on your hands. I don't want you putting your hand on my face going, oh, it's so good to see you. We get the logic of that. We don't want stuff to spread. We don't, I mean, we of all people in this age understand that idea of stuff spreading, right, with COVID in our background. We get the logic of that. But the idea is not that someone simply needed to wash their dirty hands from from working in the yard or put a bandage over some kind of boil. The idea was that many different activities, listen to me now, many different activities or circumstances would make someone ceremonially unclean. That is, make them unfit to be in God's holy place before the tent of meeting where they were to bring their sacrifices. There's lots of different ways you could could make yourself unclean. For instance, if someone came into contact with someone that was dead, it would be inappropriate for them to be then in the presence of the living God. Even the blood of childbirth made a mother unclean until the time for a purifying sacrifice was made. Blood, you see, represents death. Once again, unfit. It's not not appropriate to be in in the place or in the presence of a holy God when you have come in contact with the things of death. And this is likely what Mary was doing in in Luke 2. When Jesus was presented, she also brought a sacrifice according to the law. That was for her own purification. So what's the big deal about sin's polluting effect? What's the big deal about it? Why does a sin offering need to be offered? It's because sin made worship impossible. Sin separates you from God. It contaminates the place of worship. It made God's tabernacle itself unclean, keeping him away. Here's something else, as we've already seen Sin reaches everyone in the covenant community. From priests on down to individual worshipers. And depending on one's role in the community, their sin had varying degrees of contamination of the place of worship. Now follow me here. You have to do a little work. You have to roll up your sleeves and look at the text to see this. We see this in the application of the blood of the sacrifice. Remember we read all those different categories, right? And each time the blood was applied to somewhere... If a community leader sinned or an individual person sinned, the blood of their sacrifice was applied to the altar in the courtyard, outside the tabernacle, in front of it, where the burnt offerings were offered. We see this in verses 25 and 30 and 34. 25, 30, and 34. The blood of a community leader or an individual. If they sinned, the blood of their sin offering was applied to the horns of the altar outside the tabernacle. Think about how the sin of one might hinder the worship of many. How damaging our individual sins can be. Not being careful in our relationships, for instance, can get in the way of someone else's ability to worship. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a second. But the damage of sin's pollution was all the greater when it was the sin of a priest, a priest who worked in the tabernacle, who mediated other people's worship. If it was his sin, or, or if the entire community sinned in some way, it was, it, was, it was greater pollution, if you will. It was greater contamination. And if their sin made them unclean, even the holy place inside the tabernacle The furniture in there was made unclean by a priest whose sin was not atoned for and him going in there where the altar of incense was in inside that holy place. Right outside the veil before you go into the most holy place. They would even have to sprinkle seven times. Seven is the number that symbolizes perfection and completeness. Sprinkle right as close as they could get to God's presence without actually going behind the veil. Seven sprinkles of blood. And then also on the, the incense uh, altar inside the tabernacle, which symbolized the prayers of the saints. Hmm. A priest, the one mediating the people's worship, could by his sin make all that worship stop. What a contrast to Jesus Christ. What a contrast to our great high priest who has never sinned and will never sin, always perfectly interceding for his people. What a contrast. May that that cause your worship for your high priest, your Savior, Jesus Christ, well up in your hearts because your worship will never be hindered by your mediator. Think about how your sin could contaminate the lives of others. Remember, I said we're going to come back to it. I thought about this. When I read priest, I uh, naturally think of the, the role of pastor. Not that those roles are exactly the same. I think of them in terms of spiritual leaders of the people. What about a pastor who fails to lead the church in confronting and disciplining sin? What a devastating result on the people, leading them, perhaps ignorantly, to turn a blind eye to sin. What if a pastor fails to lead the church to be merciful and cultivate a heart of compassion toward the needy? These may be negligent things. They might not be intentional wrongs by a pastor, but they're not fitting for God's holy people. And it affects other people and causes them to drift away from the heart of God in worship and in service. What about not being careful in disputable matters or gray areas? Remember Paul's warning to the mature brother? 1 Corinthians 8, we were just in that book. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Are you careful in those gray areas not to cause other weaker brothers and sisters to stumble? Or perhaps you might even think in these terms of Jesus' own words in Matthew 18 and verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for them to have what? a great millstone around their neck, and thrown into the sea and drown and die Then lead someone else into sin. Friends, let us examine our lives and never downplay our sin. Let us love others in the church by being careful how we live alongside them. Our sin can not only damage ourselves, distancing ourselves from the Lord, making our intimacy with him a thing of the past, but it can bring great harm to the faith of others also. Sin pollutes. Why do sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God? Well, that's one of the reasons. First, sin was pervasive. It is pervasive. Sin pollutes, and now finally, sin requires purifying. Now, even as I say those words... it it makes my mind go in a wrong direction. It makes me think of me purifying me. It makes me think of like some kind of religious work that I might do to clean myself up. And that's not what this text teaches. In fact, that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's not a religious act that buys favor with God and so that he'll switch you from the unclean camp to the clean camp. It's not some ritual that convinces God that he saw things unclearly. No, this is an act of mercy on the part of the Lord. He's the one that instituted this sacrifice. He's the one who made a covenant with sinners. He's the one we saw in chapter 1, wants sinners to draw near listen to the refrain of God's purifying mercy in our text. Verse 20, second half. The priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. Verse 26, second half. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven. Verse 31. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Verse 35. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he's committed and he shall be forgiven. Imagine this very lesson taught thousands and thousands of times to just your family. Every time your family brought a sin offering. Sin makes you unclean, but if you turn from your sin and trust in God's forgiveness through the death of another, you'll be forgiven. Your sin will be purified. You will be purified from your sin, rather. I'm imagining an Israelite mom or dad teaching their kid this. Turn from your sins. Know that your sins make you unholy. You, it, they separate you from God. But God in his grace will allow this animal that we have brought to be slaughtered. Well, so, so our sins would be cleansed. So that you will not pollute God's holy presence. And you'll be able to be here with him in front of his tent. Yes, believe God's provision of a substitute so that you might be purified and so you might not have to pay for your sins. Earlier, I referenced the principle that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That's repeated a number of times in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9 is one of those places. That's a hard verse, isn't it? The sins of the Father will, be, will extend into the third and fourth generations of those who hate God, it says. But listen to the very next verse. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 10. God says, But I will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, this being one of them. Repenting of your sins and trusting in a substitute so that you might be cleansed before God. Sin requires this purifying, but it comes by grace through repentant faith. Repentance is necessary, it's the very act of putting your hand on the head of the animal. This animal's going to die for me right now because of my sin. It's a very sober thing. Death is no small thing, even killing an animal. I mean, how hard is it to put down one of our, a pet that we have, right? Death is a serious thing, even the death of an animal. And so if you're going to go through this ritual, it's not just some stupid you, you know, thing that you do unthinkingly. No, you are, you're placing your hand, you're saying, I'm the one that's causing this death taking it very seriously and turning away from it. So repentance is required for forgiveness, for atonement to take place. No unthinking ceremony cleanses the stain and stench of sin, bringing men back into God's holy presence. Now sin needs to be continually cleaned up. Sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God. But the need for the priest to be cleansed from his sin and the need for the community and its leaders and its individual members needing to offer purifying sacrifices again and again and again each time they learn of even inadvertent sins. This is, the, this is what the law teaches. It never saves. It only brings the knowledge of sin. It speaks to a system that's incomplete, that doesn't ever really get the job done. Sin stains being cleaned again and again through death, through blood being applied. Sin bringing uncleanness and separation between man and God in an unending cycle. That's the occasion for the sin offering. It was... It was brought again and again, but it was never meant to finally cleanse men of sin. It was incomplete. It pointed, of course, to Christ. The one who would take away our sins forever. Who would make us forever clean before God. Christ's purity, his righteousness, his, his perfect fitness for living with the Father is applied to all who place their faith in him. That's where we start from. So if you haven't yet turned to God by faith, friend, listen closely, everybody up here. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ to save you, then you are forever unfit for being in his presence. You'll never get to heaven because that's his holy dwelling place. But if you place your faith in Jesus, if you turn from your sins and say, His death pays for my sins and cleanses me from my sins, then you'll be able to have your sins forgiven and live with God forever. Eternal life. Put your faith in Jesus today. Every sinner born into this world needs to do that in order to be cleansed from their sins. But you know, this sacrifice isn't about coming to God in the first place, Christian. It's about this need for continual cleansing. Even after you're made part of God's family, this idea that your sin makes you dirty and filthy and unfit for God's presence. That's why I asked you at the beginning, what do you do when you sin? How do you think about it? What do you do with your sin? Does it affect your fellowship with God? Of course it does. Don't rest on the day that you first believed and and, and, and never gain from Christ's purifying death on a daily basis. You need that. We, like the people in this text, we discover that we have sinned. We take We take stock of our lives. We examine ourselves, and we see ourselves hopefully. We mature and grow and see that we're more sinful than what we once thought. But don't try to hide that. Don't try to hide that. Admit your sin. Confess it to God. The sacrifice of Jesus pays for all our sins. The ones behind us and the ones right here in front of us. You know, I read 1 John 1, 8 and 10. You know verse 9, right in the middle of those two. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our sin offering. Over and over and over again, Jesus' sacrifice is enough to cleanse us so that we we don't pollute our worship apply that cleansing forgiveness from Christ again and again. Maybe you need to do that today. Maybe you've been harboring a sin. Maybe you've been trying to hide it and cover it so that no one will know. Friends, sin is pervasive. It pollutes and we need it requires this purification, but Christ's sacrifice does just that. So live a holy life. Strive to live a holy life. Kill your sin. Have a plan. But when you fail, run to him again. Admit your sin, and you will be forgiven. You will be purified of that polluting effect of sin. Sinners need to be continually cleaned up to be with God. What a wonderful truth, because God provides the means of that. Class.